while they're getting the mic, uh, I'll start and uh, talk to you a little bit. And uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalms 85, that's where I'm going to begin our lesson. But I surely enjoyed the service, the song service, and the rejoicing that our spirit felt in uh, the freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, the song that that choir sung, I remember hearing it sung at a camp meeting one time, I think it was by a trio, uh, the people rejoiced uh, so loud that praising the Lord and thanking God for the freedom they had that uh, the song, the singers had to quit singing. And uh, But I thank God for the freedom that Christ has given us. It's a wonderful thing to to be able to be free from the chains of sin. Of course, you've already heard others testify about that this morning, but I just want to say it's a wonderful thing. Okay. Psalms 85, I'll read the first few verses of this psalm. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captives of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquities of thy people, and thou hast covered all their sins. Selah. Thou hast taken away all wrath, and thou hast uh, turned thyself from the fierceness of thy anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger towards us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thy anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation, and I will hear what God the Lord will speak for me, will, uh, will speak. For me he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Loving Father of heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you this morning for uh, the presence of each one in this service, and we're asking God that thou will meet with us here, and that thou will help me as I preach, and that it may be of some benefit to someone that's here. I ask it in the name of Jesus, and amen. Let me tell you my lesson this morning, some thoughts on a spiritual awakening. My text will be found in the sixth verse, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. Here in this psalm, the psalmist begins by thanking God for his past blessings upon the people of Israel. He said, Thou hast been favorable unto thy land, and thou hast brought us back from captivity. And he's speaking there, of course, of the great deliverance that God wrought from the land of Egypt and brought his people back to the land of promise. And, and then he says, Well, thou, uh, thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people, and thou hast covered all their sins. In the Old Testament, in the covenant that God made with them when he delivered them out of the land of uh, Egypt, God entered into a covenant that provided forgiveness for all their sins. And the psalmist is just reminding 
God of his past blessings, his forgiveness in the past for the people's sins. And he's saying that thou hast taken away thy wrath, turned thyself from the fierceness of thy wrath and thy anger. And then after he is praising the Lord here for God's mercy and God's blessings that he bestowed upon his people, he says here, turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger towards us to cease. Here he's speaking again. He, he, first of all, he starts off this psalm. It could be a prayer. But he starts it off by reminding God of his past forgiveness and past mercy and uh, how God had favored his people. And now he comes to the thing that, uh, of the present and he's talking of the past of God's blessings. And now he says, turn us to God. And cause thine anger to to cease. He's speaking again of a time when God was angry with the people because of their sins. And he's asking God to turn them. And that his anger would cease. And of course the turning away from sin is a two-way street. It is God who awakens. It is God who brings us to a place of turning. But of course then you and I have to turn. And he's asking God to do that work. To turn the people and he's saying us. He's speaking about himself and he's speaking about the people of God uh, at that present time. And he said turn us O God of our salvation or deliverance. And cause thine anger towards us to cease. And then he said, Will thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger unto all generations? Again, this verse to me is is, uh, the psalmist is saying, Lord, we've been under your raft for quite a while. And is this just going to go on and on and on? Is this... Is this manifestation of your anger and wrath uh, going to continue to go on and on and drawn out? And then he says, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? He's asking, this is actually a question to God. Lord, will you not revive us? We need it. And we ask him that you will, Lord, revive your people, that they may rejoice in thee. And then he says, show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant unto us thy salvation. And then he, he puts this in to remind us that all of these things are conditioned upon yours and my response to God. And I will hear what the Lord God will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. He's saying, God, revive us and help us that we will listen to you. Listen to your voice and that we won't return again. You know, there's, there's sometimes we have revival services and, and people come to the altar. And for a short period of time... They, they kind of straighten up, you know, they, they have been uh, awakened to a degree 
They've been moved emotionally. They have responded emotionally. And it's, it's brought a change. But the change is not permanent. It, it's not something that lasts very long. It's something, uh, well, people turn again to the foolishness that, they, that, God, that they'd ask God to forgive them and that they had turned from. And so this is a prayer of the psalmist to God to revive his people and then to make it permanent and to do something for them that is not just, to use an old cliche, a flash in the pan, you know, just just something that comes up and then just falls away. There, There are times that among God's people, there have been uh, situations like that. And they just seem like that for a short moment or for a short period of time, it was up, but then it just leveled back out into the same old, same old. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? I want to first start a lesson by talking about the a revival that is occurring in Asbury University. Most of you here probably have heard about it or seen even posts of it. Uh, of the, it's a, it was an unplanned, spontaneous revival. It was something, my friend, that that nobody had planned it. Nobody had uh, said that we're going to have a revival, but it was just spontaneous. Uh, about a week and a half ago, and uh, they they had a normal chapel service. Uh, Asbury College, of course, if you know anything about it, it's a Christian college, and so they have chapel services, and this was a normal chapel service, nothing so outstanding about it, but some students young people lingered after the service to pray. And as they prayed, they began to uh, testify and also confess to one another some of the shortfallings in their life. And something happened. In that, in, in, in that uh, un, unprepared, spontaneous meeting and praying of these young people, something happened. And it transformed that meeting into something that is quite unusual. I mean, it's an unusual thing to see uh, services go on for day, days and nights, you know, in succession, such as those services have been. Something happened that transformed that meeting. The services uh, since that time, since the original meeting after the chapel, uh, of the, I'm talking about the original praying of the young people and the uh, young adults in the college. The services have included repentance. There have been confessing of sins at the altar. People that have attended, and by the way, it, just, it shows me there's a hunger in people. You know, God's people's hungry for something. We're hungry for reality. I mean, uh, I am sick and tired of just the normal state of things. And there's a hunger. And if I had been 20 years younger, I would have 
I've been down there this week sometime. But uh, anyway, these services included repentance and confession of sins at the altar. They also have included personal testimonies of hundreds who have been blessed by the services. It's, it's been a, a it's, there's no big name evangelist, there's no outstanding uh, person that is leading these services. It's just a, a thing that is occurring uh, there at Asbury University. And this is something, really, it's truly something unusual in our day and time. What's happening at Asbury University, somebody's prayed. Now, I don't know who, but I can guarantee you this. I've heard a few stories of some of the students that have been praying for quite a while now. But I can tell you this, somebody's prayed. Somebody's got a hold of God. The last time I was here when I preached about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, one of the last things that I said was that someday, somewhere, somebody will take a hold of the promises of God and cry out to God and God will answer them with an outpouring of His Holy Spirit. And I said, if we do not take advantage of that opportunity, God will find somebody who does. I'm going to tell you, God, no people, no people, no group, my friend, has a franchise on God. God, as, as, uh, as Peter said, you know, he said, uh, when God poured out the Holy Spirit, on those uncircumcised Gentiles at Cornelius' house. That was something that was astonishing to Peter. I mean, he didn't expect that. But God prepared him for, the, for that by the vision that he showed him at, at the place in Joppa. But God, my friend, Peter said this, I see a new truth. <laughs> that God no respect of person. But in every nation, he that feareth God and doeth his will, will be accepted by God. And that's what I mean, my friend, that nobody has a franchise on God. And, and just about the time you and I become arrogant and begin to think that we have, my friend, a franchise on God, that if God's going to bless this world, he has to bless him through us. God will prove us to be wrong. Amen? We don't have a franchise, but we do have an opportunity, thank God. Asbury University has Wesleyan and Methodist roots. In fact, uh, it was very prominent in in historically in the holiness movement. And in fact, it's named after the famous Methodist preacher, Francis Asbury. You ought, to, you ought to read Francis Asbury's life if you haven't already. I mean, he was sent by John Wesley uh, from England uh, to come to the colonies and 
and he was a circuit rider. Well, I'm not going to go into it, but it's a wonderful story. But that university is named after him. Only time will tell how far reaching the impact of the services that are going on at Asbury will be. I, I cannot, somebody said, how, you think this, this is the beginning of something big? I hope it is, but I, I don't know that. Time will tell, though. It has spread to other Christian colleges already. I mean, they're holding services as well. You know, this, this uh, spiritual awakening interests me. I have an intense interest in that, what's going on there at Asbury. And the reason for that is because revivals and spiritual awakenings have deeply interested me for nearly 60 years now. I've read, I've read the history of revivals, and I think uh, uh, Brother Gayhart is going down through some of those histories that America has. The first uh, awakening, as it's called, the second awakening, the Finney revivals, the prayer revivals of 1857, the other revivals, the Church of God Reformation movement, the holiness movement. I mean, uh, God has been active in the history of this country. My friend, there are times that, that God has been active, and spiritual awakening has always interested me. And there's some aspects of this spiritual awakening in Asbury that uh, there's some aspects of it that are similar to past uh, spiritual awakenings. The Wesleyan revivals and the holiness awakening begin with college young men. I think that one of the most far-reaching movements of God was the holiness awakening that came from the Wesleyan, Wesleyan revival. Because Many of these other revivals and even the Church of God Reformation movement, we, we have our roots in that holiness awakening. I mean, that's where our roots are. Um, if you, if you, of course, if you don't know history, you, uh, you have to take my word for it. But they, they have been awakenings in the past. And one of the things... That, uh, that I have found in the study of uh, revivals and awakenings is that it, many times it starts among young people. Young adults. Young adults. Why is that? Because it takes, it takes physical energy. It takes a clear mind. It takes, it takes effort to be able to promote a revival. And God needs young people. Uh, now, that doesn't mean God doesn't use old people. Uh, in the Bible, he used old people, such as Abraham. He's 90. Sarah was 100 when Isaac was born. It isn't that God doesn't use old people. That's not my point. But my point is that, generally speaking, God uses 
young people. And by young people, I mean young adults, people that are under 40, okay? Uh, when you get my age, anybody under 40 seems like a young person. You know what I mean? But anyway, my friend, this holiness awakening of which you and I are a part began many, many years ago among young college students, young men in Oxford University. They were a part of what was called the Holy Club. Wesley, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and, and some others, about four or five others, band together. And I don't have time to go into all that history, but I'm just trying to make a point here that one of the, one of the aspects of the, the revival in Asbury is that it started among young adults. Second thing is that repentance and confession of sin with much earnest prayer, has always been a part of a spiritual awakening. I've preached on repentance two or three times here in the congregation I, I was here in Lincoln County. And I, I've tried to help you see that before a spiritual awakening comes, there has to be genuine confession of sins on the part of the people of God. We have to confess our, our guilt of lukewarmness, our indifference, our, our lackadaisical ways, and, and even, even other things. But if you ever studied and uh, ever know anything about revivals, repentance and confession of sin, my friend, uh, along with earnest prayer as well, has always been a part of any great spiritual awakening. We're convicted sometimes. And sometimes when in the preaching we're convicted of our shortcomings, but we, we don't do what we need to do about it. And if you read the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches, in the book of Revelations, he called on them to repent. When he pointed out to them, he pointed out to them uh, in, 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 in the cases where he could, he pointed out the good points in the congregation. But then he also pointed out the things that they lacked in. And then he instructed them to repent. Now repent, my friend, means more than to be sorry for it. It means more, my friend, than to regret it. It means, my friend, to confess it to God and to turn from it. And that's where, that's where we're falling short. We recognize it. I mean, I'm sure that I've listened to preaching uh, that, that others have done and your pastor's done uh, here at Lincoln County. And, and I know people have been convicted. But there has to be something beyond that. And every spiritual awakening has that in it. And that is confession and repentance. That means to own it and say, yes, Lord, I'm embarrassed by it. 
Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but yes, that's me. That's who I am. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And will you change me? Long services lasting for uh, several days have also been in revivals in the past. Some of Charles Finney's revivals uh, illustrate that. A revival, my friend, is a spiritual reawakening. It's not the original awakening of a sinner uh, from uh, awakening him in his sins and bringing him, my friend, uh, to acknowledge that he needs a Savior, he needs Jesus, he, he needs to uh, accept Christ as his Savior. Revival is something beyond that. Revival is a spiritual reawakening. And by reawakening, I mean it's not the original one. But we're reawakened. And that usually occurs after a period of stagnation among true believers. There are times and periods that come in the history of the church when there's stagnation. I mean, uh, the zeal of God's people, the uh, rejoicing and, and, and all that's involved in many aspects of living for God, it just, it just becomes stagnated. And a stagnant pool, you, all, you already know, my friend, breeds the wrong kind of things. A revival usually begins by having our eyes and ears open to the truth in a fresh way. Sometimes it can be something that you've heard again and again and again. But it's the word of God and the truth of God comes to you in a fresh way. It, 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 you already know it. You know, you've heard it. Uh, you've heard it preached on at different times. But it comes in a fresh way. It comes to you as if you'd never heard it before. And in a time of revival, my friend, it, it begins in that way. The eyes and the ears of God's people are open. Jesus said, if you have you, what did he say to these churches? Every one of them, every one of the seven churches in, in, uh, in Revelation, what did he say? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. And that, that's how revival begins. It's hearing maybe the same thing you've heard again and again, but it's hearing it in a fresh way. Somehow, the hearing of it is like you never heard it before. It has, it has an awakening effect. That's why it's called a spiritual awakening. The truth has an awakening effect, and my friend wakes us up to our, our need. True revival always includes, my friend, a renewed appreciation of a holy life and righteousness. A new appreciation. I'm not saying that people don't, don't understand that. They, they know they, that the Bible teaches we need to live a holy life. The Bible teaches, my friend, that we need to be righteous people. But 
in a revival, there's a renewed appreciation of that truth. And and it's something, my friend, that makes us, we want, uh, as Jesus said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And there's something about a revival that awakens that hunger. There's something about a revival that causes that hunger to be intense. It isn't that it wasn't there before, but it includes uh, renewed appreciation of what a holy life really is and a desire to have it. It also, my friend, includes an awareness and conviction of personal and corrupt and corporal sins. I've already mentioned that. But it always includes that. Conviction. A revival at the beginning is not all fun. <laughs> revival at the beginning, not all fun. It's not, it's not enjoyable to have your shortcomings and your sins Revealed. Become aware of them. In fact, it, it's just the opposite of being happy. It's, it actually is being grieved and, and feeling very badly. But that's how revival begins. Revival develops a spirit of humility. A desire for repentance and a desire to grow in holiness. Those three things. A spirit of humility. Somebody said, what is humility? Well, my definition of humility may be different than yours, but to to me, true humility is admitting to yourself and to God what you know is true. It's admitting to yourself and to God what you know is true about yourself. When your shortcomings are pointed out, you just say, that's me, Lord. I'm I'm embarrassed by it. I'm humbled by it. But that's me. That's who I am. A spirit of humility, my friend, precedes a true repentance and a true turning from what is wrong and a desire as I've already said to grow in holiness a revival invigorates and develops one's faith and commitment to righteousness America in her past has experienced several national revivals that done just exactly what I've described here. They've had, this is not a fairy tale. It's not something that we say, well, uh, I don't know whether that's possible. It's already occurred. It's already happened several times in our nation. Now, none of us were alive when it did. None of us, my friend, were alive when when the national revival. So, we've grown accustomed, my friend, to believing that it's not possible. In fact, some of our, our preachers are saying that the Bible teaches 
against really a spiritual awakening because the Bible prophesies that things have to get worse and worse and worse till Jesus comes. Boy, I'd, I'd like to take an hour and show you how in error that really is. But I'm not going to, not this morning. But that's an error. It undermines faith. It undermines, my friend, the hope of revival, to believe that. The truth is this, that dark days usually precede a revival. Historically, if you go back and read, my friend, the state of the church in Wesley's day or uh, in, in the early colonies before uh, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards in the first uh, awakening, the great awakening as it's called, I mean, the conditions were very dark. Preceding every revival in history, there's always been a time of spiritual indifference and darkness. Uh, the churches, my friend, uh, the numbers of people going to churches fell off, and, and it looked like that evil was going to just, just swallow it all up. But a revival came. Sometimes in the darkest hour. I know that you find that hard to be. I know it's been drilled into your heart and mind that things are dark and they're bad and they're going to get worse. I know you've had that pounded into your mind. And, and even, even enforced by saying that that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. And, and it's no wonder that people don't believe and don't have hope. Because it's been driven into their mind that the darkness we're now in is destined to last until Jesus comes. What hope would revival have? If that were true, what hope would we have? And even praying. What inspiration would we have for our prayers? What hope would we have that our prayers would be answered? I can tell by the way you're responding to what I'm saying that I'm shocking some of you. But listen to me. Listen to me. The God that has worked in the past is the God that you and I still serve today. He's still the same God. The dark days, I say, my friend, that precede a revival, uh, it, it's a time of spiritual darkness, time of spiritual indifference. I mean, you can see it everywhere today. This is the kind of a time that God moves in. He's just looking for somebody or somebody's, you know, more than one. But he's looking for people, my friend, through whom he can work his will and ways. In the dark days of unbelief that precede a spiritual awakening, usually some evil force or some movement boasts of its power 
to destroy Christianity. <laughs> you know, there's been many, many atheists, uh, and again, I, I'm, I, I, my mind's so full, uh, I'm, I'm afraid of digressing from my main point, but if you knew history, there's been people that have boasted I forget that emperor in Rome, but when he died, he thought uh, this was an emperor after uh, Nero, and he was ten times worse than Nero, but he thought he had wiped Christianity off the world. I mean, he thought he had completely Destroyed it. <laughs> How wrong he was. People don't even remember his name. Dominican or something like that. But people don't even remember his name. But Christianity. <laughs> oh, it actually flourished after his death. But some evil force removed. We got him today. We got people, my friend, that are bent on Destroying Christianity. I mean, they, they, really, they really think they can. <laughs> They're fools. I'm telling you. Christ built a church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And I know that their threats can frighten us. They do me sometimes. You know, political powers and political parties and and people in high places and and they they take and they take our institutions that were intended for our protection and turn them into a weapon my friend a political weapon to get their way and it's it's a frightening thing and i say again that in every dark day of unbelief some evil force or some movement my friend boasted of its power to overcome and destroy Christianity. In these times, often the church set in embarrassing powerlessness. They were embarrassed, the church embarrassed, because they lacked power to do anything about it. So we seem like we're so powerless, and we just have to set and suffer the abuse and the scorn that's heaped upon us by the wicked. And the church in these days preceding a spiritual awakening seemed unable to defend herself against the powers and forces of evil. During these dark days, which preceded revival in history, when evil was triumphing, the hopes and the faith of God's people often reach a very low level. Their faith just, well, they just didn't have much faith. Jesus' words, oh, ye of little faith, would certainly describe some of us. Our hopes and the faith has reached a very low level. 
Oh, we may publicly say one thing, but in our hearts of hearts, it's a different matter. The sense of spiritual reality seems to have evaporated. You go to church and there's, there's, there's no real sense of God's presence. I mean, real sense. Oh, there, there are times when, when we're excited by music or excited by something that a fellow preaches and so on, but there's no sense of the reality of God's presence. Kind of like Elisha when he came back after the experience of seeing Elijah taken to heaven in a whirlwind. He come back to the same river they had crossed just previously. And when, when Elijah left, he left his mantle. And Elisha picked it up and put it on. And there's significance in that. But when he got to that river, he took that mantle and he slept up. Water! And he said, where is the God of Elijah? And the waters parted. And the people that watched that said, the spirit that was on Elijah is now on Elisha. Spiritual reality, the sense of God's presence. Have you ever asked yourself the question with all this stuff going on today, and as your pastor says, all the craziness, where is God? He's, he's just where he's always been. Amen. The weariness and the grief that comes from a deepening sense that the powers of evil in our culture are winning the battle. I don't know about you, but I remember uh, the day that the Supreme Court uh, opened the floodgate of iniquity for homosexuality. And, and uh, I, I went to my computer and was, went to the uh, site, the, the, uh, Fox News, and, and in the headlines, it, it said that the Supreme Court had, had said that homosexuality was no longer a crime, no longer something that was illegal. And instantly, I just broke down and wept. Just, I just wept because I knew that it was the forces of evil winning the battle. And that's what happens many times before revival. The powers of evil in our culture are winning the battle. We did have a victory this past summer with the reversal of Roe versus Way. Thank God for that. But Psalms 119, 158 verse said, I beheld the transgressors and was grieved. 
because they kept not thy word. When, when the writer of this 119th Psalm, he said that when he seen uh, the transgressors of God's law, people breaking God's law, when he seen them that didn't keep God's commandments, he said, I was grieved. And I'm telling you that the dark days preceding revival does bring a grief. You know, I'm, I'm going to digress here. Just, But love and grief are two very opposite kinds of emotion. Love, sometimes, love is, is a warm thing. Excuse me. Love is a warm emotion. Grief is a difficult emotion. But they are related. You know when you when somebody that you love, when they die and go on to be with the Lord, you grieve. Love, in fact, the more you love, the more you grieve. It's the same way here. When God's people, when they love God and they see the wicked triumphing, it brings a grief. And, and the, the deeper you love God, the deeper your grief is. I've, I've said to the Lord, oh God, I'm so sorry for the way that people treat you. I'm so, I feel so bad the way that people treat you. I've seen people in the congregations I pastored, that God blessed them and, and then they, they become indifferent and and turn some of them on the wrong path, go back to folly, as the scriptures say. I'm going to go on. But the righteous can experience what we might call a spiritual nausea. A spiritual nausea. It's not a physical thing. But God's people can become sickened by the triumph of prevailing wickedness. It just, it just makes you sick. I mean, the things that people are doing today and the, the uh, and some of ours, I just read this past week, uh, in some elementary school, they started a Satan's club. <laughs> I mean, that's sickening to me. And I read of other things, all the the shootings and the everything that's going on. It's sickening to God's people. It makes God sick. It's kind of like Jesus said concerning the church at Laodicea. He said, your condition of lukewarmness makes me sick. I'd spew you out of my mouth. and In plain English, I'd vomit you out. It's sickening to God, but it's also sickening to God's people. And all of this, as I've mentioned, the dark days 
before revival comes, this, my friend, creates a deep sense of uneasiness and fear among the people of God. It's just, that's its tendency. It's just an uneasiness, uneasiness about, a fear about the future. Some of us, Brother Gayhart and myself, we are talking about our age here this morning. We're just a few months apart in age. But I think of my children and grandchildren. One of my granddaughters is here this morning, Valerie, visiting. And I think of, of what they're going to face, not what I'm going to face, because, I mean, it's just a, a, a few years here, two or three years. I mean, it's over. But my children and grandchildren, and especially my grandchildren, we are now running up debts that my grandchildren, and I have a, a few great-grandchildren, about nine or ten. But anyway, we're running up debts that they're going to be paying if we don't go bankrupt. Somebody said America's going to go bankrupt. We're bankrupt already. We're, I forget how many trillions of dollars in debt. In fact, the national debt has, a, has exceeded, my friend, the national value. I, technically, we're bankrupt. But we keep borrowing. You know why? Because there's some greedy people that want something for nothing. And that's why there's one political party, my friend, that is so popular uh, among younger people because they're getting something for nothing. But someday that... That, that bill will come due. That's another subject. God help me. Psalms 11, verses 2 and 3. For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the string to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's what happened in a dark day before spiritual awakening. A sense of uneasiness, a sense of fear, grief, weariness. And a spiritual awakening normally begins with a profound sense of dissatisfaction. <clears throat> you, just, you just are so dissatisfied with what is going on in the world and in the church. I mean, you're just, you're just full of it. You're dissatisfied, my friend, with what is taking place. That's how it begins. You know, you can be like the Laodicean church and say, I have need of nothing and get nothing. But if you 
have a profound sense of dissatisfaction and know your need, you begin to cry out to God. In a spiritual awakening, people wake up gradually. They wake up, my friend, to a, first of all, a deeper concern about the spiritual conditions in the church and in the world. They wake up, my friend, to their sense of spiritual emptiness, and this all creates a longing, a hunger, a desire for something better. We will never see spiritual awakening until we become so dissatisfied and 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 on the other hand longing for something better i just i just don't want to live like this years ago <clears throat> i uh i suffered rejection by my brethren i was set aside uh for a doctrinal teaching and and it left me it left me with a some some people during that during that trial some people that i loved very some people i was very close to turned against me and 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 actually tried to destroy my ministry and so much so that i said to myself well, if i can't trust them who can i trust and a spirit of suspicion took hold of me. And by that I mean I come to a place where I wouldn't trust nobody. I just I just not gonna trust nobody. People I had trusted, people I had good fellowship and confidence in had done me a very great wrong. And I'm just not I just, I'm just not going to let my love go out and my confidence and my trust in others. And I lived in a spirit of suspicion, suspecting everybody's out to get me. And I went to a meeting, and the preacher preached on love and brotherly love. And, and I sat there and I listened. And I was convicted, and I said, I want to love people again. I had, I had been hurt so bad emotionally that I, just, I wasn't going to love because I didn't want to get hurt anymore. I, I just not going not to trust people because I don't want to get hurt anymore. I've been hurt enough. But as I listened to that, and I saw, I said, Lord, that's my need to love and to trust people. And I was, I, I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I was in a place where there were several people that had tried to destroy my ministry, was in that same meeting. But as I was convicted 
of my need. God spoke to my heart. I stood there during the invitation. And God said, you want to live the rest of your life like you are? Under suspicion, not trusting nobody. Not, not, not loving people like you ought to. But withholding your love because you're afraid of getting hurt. You want to live like that? The rest of your life? That's how God spoke to me. You want to live like that? You want to live like you're living now? The rest of your life? And I said, no, Lord. But he said, then come. And I'll forgive you. And I'll restore you. And I did. I, I moved up. I came to the altar. And a couple of brethren came up to pray with me. And one that was on one side of me was one of the worst of the preachers that tried to destroy me. And my, my commitment was tried. I mean, right instantly, it was tried. But I said, Lord, I'm going to trust people. I'm going to love people. I'm going to do what I can to reach out, no matter what. And God gave me victory. It's when you, when you become dissatisfied with how you're living. Now, if, if, if how you're living satisfies you, that's the low spiritual level that you're living on, if you're satisfied there, you ain't never going to get out of it. You're going to live and die there. But if you become dissatisfied, I don't want to live like this. There's something better. There's something better for me. Well, that's how spiritual awakening begins, my friend, is that you know that there's something better and you begin to seeking God. As I said, these things can lead to a depressed, broken-hearted, state of feelings. But that's, that's who God looks to. I think in Ezekiel, in the ninth chapter, fourth verse, says this, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city and through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. God's looking for broken-hearted people. Not, not broken-hearted over broken relationships. Not broken-hearted over your health. Not broken-hearted, my friend, over your financial condition. But broken-hearted because of all the abominations and all of the sin and all of the ungodliness, all of the ugliness that's going on. You're broken-hearted. You're grieved over it. So much so that you want to see something better. And as I've already said before, all of this, this condition, I'm trying to describe the, the mental and emotional state of mind that precedes a revival. 
I mean, it's not, it's not something fun to endure, what I've just described. But it leads to something. The state of mind that I have described leads people to earnest prayer. And earnest prayer always precedes a spiritual awakening. The spiritual craving for something better, my friend, can be intense at times. I mean, your heart just craving something better. Lord, do a work among your people. Bring an awakening. Pour out your spirit upon our hearts. Save our lost loved ones. This grieving over sin, as I said, and this content, this spiritual craving for something better can become intense. In fact, it can almost feel like an oppressive load, you know, like mental, a mental weight. Oh, God, give us something. Give us something better than what we see today. Second Peter 2, verse 7 and 8. And delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation. The word conversation in the King James Version means manner of life. And delivered just a lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Lot was vexed day after day after day with what he saw going on in Sodom. His soul was vexed. Such heartfelt grief results in God's people praying. They pray for something better. They pray for a fresh renewal, for fresh, a refreshing of spiritual life and the presence and power of God among them. And this Longing, this spirit of earnest prayer in history has always been a forerunner of a spiritual awakening. The longing and the cravings for God to manifest his presence and power leads God's people to pray, to cry out to him in earnest prayer. I got a couple of questions I want to ask you, and then I'm going to close. First of all, are you experiencing a sickening feeling and grief, a heartbrokenness in view of the prevailing wickedness in our culture? Does that describe you? You're heartbroken over what's going on. You're really grieved about it. It vexes you from day to day. 
Second of all, has this heartbrokenness and grief led you to earnest and sincere crying out to God? When God's people, and I'll even personalize, when this congregation can answer, my friend, those questions, both of them, with yes, then, my friend, a spiritual awakening is not very far. I don't know whether you understood what I said this morning or not. I hope you have. In fact, I believe there's some of you that have. You know, God, God always reserves a remnant to himself. In the darkest of times, you know. In the darkest of times. God's always had a remnant. Elijah, when he stood alone on Mount Carmel, and he actually complained to God, and said, I, I am the only one left, Lord. And what, did, what was God's answer to him? What did God say to him? He said, Elijah, I've got 7,000. And that's, a, that's a, not a literal number. That's a figurative number. But in that day and time, it represented a goodly number. I have 7,000 that have never bowed the knee to Baal. There's a remnant. Thank God there's a remnant. There are some of you that know exactly, you know by experience exactly what I preached this morning. Your heart has been grieved. You've been heartbroken. And you have craved. And it has led you to many seasons of earnest prayer. Oh, God, do something. Deliver us. Wilt thou not revive us again? Loving Father, to thee we offer thanks for your help this morning. Now I've unburdened my heart to these folks. I know some of the things I said may have startled some and shocked others. But I tried to describe, dear Lord, the state of heart and mind that is required before a true spiritual awakening comes to people. Before you, before you do anything for your people, you put them to praying. And the way you lead them to pray is not just tell them to pray, but to create a mental and emotional condition that drives them to prayer. Father, I pray that you'd bless this congregation. I love the pastor, Brother Bartlett, and I love the people. 
And I'm just here on occasion from time to time. But my heart's desire had been to try to encourage them, Lord. There's so much to discourage them today. Let let my voice and the words that I've said be an encouragement to those, Lord, that at a very low ebb in faith, in zeal, in hope. Let it encourage them. But then work in the hearts of each one of us what needs to be done so that you can work in a greater way among us. Bless, I pray, Father of Heaven, these dear people. Lord, help them. Awaken. Deliver. And bring, Father of Heaven, what we need to each heart. I ask it all in the name of Jesus and for your honor and glory, Lord. And amen. Would you stand, please? Page 395 in your big books, if you would, please. Page 395. I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love to Once again, we have been highly favored and blessed of God to hear from God. I don't know if you saw, and I'm just going to make a few comments, but I don't know if you saw Tucker Carlson. He called Asbury College and was going to go visit and wanted the staff to know that he was coming. And he had announced that he was going to go. But the staff called him back and they said, we don't want you to come. Not because they didn't like Tucker Carlson, but because they didn't want to mix politics with what God was doing. Asbury was on a much higher plane than what goes on through the medias 
And so Tucker explained that to his audience. And he said, I'm very impressed and very thankful that they have done that. And they told me to cancel my visit. See, Tucker had more reverence and respect for what was going on in Asbury than what he could say through the media. And I just want to read the last chapter of Job. And it's an experience that Brother Yoder so wonderfully presented to us. And we need to go home and we need to pray about it. And we need to want that experience more than we want anything else. Otherwise, we're never going to receive what the brother preached this morning. And so after God had spoken to Job, I want you to hear what he said. He said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. There was a truth that came to Job, just like Brother Yoder said, in a new and a refreshing way. And Job knew that his three comforters were wrong, but there was another truth that he had to understand. But now, listen to what he said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye seeth thee, God. Now I see what you see when you look at me. And if we don't see God as God sees us and not as we see one another in the mirror or one another as what people think of us or what we think of ourselves, but until we see God as God sees us, how does God see us? It's right here. It's in his word. And there are few people that will ever come to that, that place in their lifetime will they'll ever admit it. Wouldn't it be nice if what's going on in Asbury broke out here? And the question is, are we willing? Willing to pray the price? Truth came to Job in a new and a fresh way. I guess what I'm saying is nothing costs too much if it will take us to heaven. And unfortunately, we become more in love with what the world's offering than what God is offering. And until that get, gets right side up, the Church of God of Licking County and any other church 
will never experience what this brother preached. So I'm going to ask that as we leave the service this morning, that you don't let what you heard this morning come to an end. Brother Yoder's right. This country is in a mess. And our leaders are more messed up than they've ever been. And they don't love you and they don't love me. They love themselves and they love the almighty dollar. And they love power and they love sex. Period. Wouldn't it be wonderful if what happened to Job and what happened to Wesley and the Holy Club and what happened in Asbury and what happened in a lot of revivals, if something like that can happen to us? Well, the brother told us. The opportunity, the availability is there for every single one of us. Wherefore I abhor myself. Job was pouring judgment all over his three comforters. He thought he was really smart, and he was. But there was something lurking in him that he didn't see, but God saw. And I'm afraid there's things lurking in all of us that we don't see what God sees. So don't let this service end. Be smart. Go home, get your kids, and get on your knees. Find a little quiet time in the afternoon. Get on your knees. And that's what we all need to do. And our prayer ought to be, God, what do you see that I don't? You got to have guts and you got to have a lot of humility to pray that prayer.